One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey folks, it's Mike here. Well, it's a lovely sunny day. Uh, I'm out in the town at the moment and I thought I'd do you a Meander Mile episode five. Uh, as mentioned, uh, I'm currently away uh, doing the research for the rest of this part of the season of Murder Mile. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take you on a lovely little walk down Wardle Street, uh, which is one of the main streets in Soho. What we're gonna do is we're gonna cross, uh, we're gonna cross Old Compton Street and all the familiar locations that we've spotted before. So. Um, if you want to, you can go to my blog. Uh, there's loads of pictures on there and they're all numbered and you can see all the locations if you want to. Uh, you can also use the uh, Google Maps that's on there. I'll give you some start points or a start point. There's no point in me giving you multiple start points. And then you can follow the route uh, on uh, Google Maps. If not, just enjoy the journey. So uh, what I'm actually doing is I'm starting right at the top uh, by Oxford Street uh, and I'm currently walking south. Heading down, there's a man shouting at me for no particular reason then. It's gonna be one of those days, I feel it. Um, so just before we go down the road, um, if we go in front of uh, 182 Wardour Street, you'll see that there's a Pret-a-Manger here. This is murder related, but it kind of isn't murder related as well. Um, there's uh, one of my favorite films, Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. His uh, 1972 penultimate film. Just behind here, I've been trying to find this location for ages. Uh, this was the uh, location where Richard Blaney murdered his uh, ex-wife. I've been trying to find that location for ages. It's been covered up for years, but it's, it is behind there. Um, if we're strolling down a little bit further, uh, you will notice at 189 Wardour Street, you'll notice a lovely little place called uh, Joyce's Mr. Jerk. Um, I actually knew about this murder case uh, back when I was working as a runner for the film industry many, many years ago, back in 2001 it was. Uh, I went past here, there was a policeman in front of it guarding it and I was like, what's going on? He was like, oh, there's been a murder here, it was murder last night. And I was like, really? What, what happened? And he was like, I don't know, I think someone's head got cut off. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating, but I haven't been able to find any details about it for ages. Um, so, uh, but I have actually now. Um, so this building, uh, on 4th of March 2001, I can't even pronounce this guy's name, uh, he's a uh, Lithuanian, uh, Jelanta Luki, oh, I can't pronounce that, 30, 40 years old, he was a cafe worker. This was originally Cafe, cafe Fleur du Jour. Uh, there was a gentleman in there called Mohammed Al Nasri Al Din, that's a complicated name, he was 28 years old, he was the chef. Uh, they were colleagues together. Uh, he was, most of, everyone seemed to know him as Awad. Um, there seemed to be a, a bit of a domestic between the two of them um, and Awad went on the run. As far as we know, he's in Egypt. Um, but really, what has happened to him since then, we just don't know. Um, so going a little bit further forward here, well, I'm packing them in. Do you know what? I'm barely even moving and we're packing in all the murders. Um, I'm on uh, Holland Street. Oh no, I tell you what, let's turn right. If we look to our right, this is just a little thing I found out the other day. You will see, so it's very noisy here. We've got taxis next to me and a police helicopter overhead. Um, uh, to my right is Knoll Street. It's only a small street, but uh, a 25 Knoll Street back in the 1920s. Uh, there's a little building on the left-hand side just down there. That was originally the Italian fascist HQ in, in Great Britain. And now it's a, a post-production house. So for those of you who currently work in post-production, I don't think there's much difference between uh, the fascists and post-production. Yeah, a little dig into uh, um, the post-production industry there. I'm amazed it's still going. 
<sighs> right, on our left is another street called Holland Street. Um, if you're wondering at this moment, we have literally moved probably about 100 feet, if that, I've, ba I've barely moved an ounce. An ounce? That's not even English. Well, it is English. Um, so, Holland Street. Uh, this is a murder I discovered a couple of days ago, I've been digging into, but there's, there's, there's not a lot I can really tell you about it, um, except, especially because the building is now demolished. It was originally on 12 Holland Street, which was on the right-hand side, uh, but that's, that's been demolished and replaced. But on the uh, 19th of March, 1846, uh, there was a lady who lived there. She was incredibly poor. Her name was Mary Beale, uh, also known as Mary Slater. That seemed to be the name she was going under. She was 34 years old. She was cohabiting a kind of a one-roomed uh, one bedroom with a kind of a, a, not really a husband, but kind of a, a live-in lover. They had basically a bed, a stove. That's pretty much it. Um, on that date, 19th of March, 1846, um, no one seemed to have heard any sounds of fighting or anything like that. There didn't seem to be any screams. Her neighbor called Mrs. Boone, who was a, a, a lodger there, um, looked through the window, couldn't get in touch with Mary Beale, uh, got into the room, and then she found Mary Beale hanging from her cupboard. Basically, there was a, a, a knocked over chair in front of her, a cord around her neck. The cord was incredibly tight, so tight that it was cutting into her neck and it actually, it actually went in about three or four inches into her neck, so it almost decapitated her. Um, and she'd been hanging there for at least 12 hours. Um, police came along, or the version of the police that we had at the time came along, cut her down. Um, they tried to find her husband slash uh, cohabitor uh, called Mr. Slater. He was missing with their daughter. They had a daughter together. He hasn't been seen since. Um, now, originally, everyone kind of said, well, this is just a, uh, you know, a, a suicide because she'd been quite depressed. But when they actually looked at the details, they were kind of uh, worried about it because it, it didn't look as if she'd done it herself. It looked like, uh, by the way that she was hanging, that she actually would have needed help in order to do it because she was actually quite small. So it looks like uh, her husband may have hung her, which is absolutely lovely. What a lovely man. Anyway, he went on the run. Uh, as did his daughter, and we've no idea what happened to them since. So, uh, might not be coming back, coming to Murder Mile anytime soon, because to be honest, that's all we seem to know. Um, so I'm just, before, oh, okay, here's one. Before we get to the George pub, which is just on our right-hand side, uh, obviously it's summer days and the pub's open, which is fantastic. Um, this happened back in 2003. So there's a gentleman called Michael O'Hara, 35 years old. Uh, he was a prolific mugger in kind of the West End round here. And there was a string of attacks. So um, yeah, it was March 2003 that year. He uh, uh, was sentenced to court. Unlike most muggers, he didn't use a knife. He didn't use a gun. He didn't use like a bottle or anything kind of horrible like that. He used something even worse. He used fear and possibly one of the strangest weapons ever. He used a uh, dirty, hypodermic needle and basically he would run around the streets going give me your money uh, do you want AIDS that was his threat what a lovely man what an absolute treat uh, so uh, Michael O'Hara who was 35 years old at the time uh, was jailed for four and a half years for that crime Whew, what a lovely person anyway uh, we've just passed the George pub and if you look on your right hand side you'll see a street uh, called Darbley Street uh, if you uh, come on Murder Mile Walks, you'll know this street incredibly well because this is kind of where we take our break. There's four Darblay Street just on the right-hand side there. It's, it's actually quite nice today. They've got all the tables out. Everyone's having meals. Uh, many of them are socially distanced, but not entirely, but that's okay. Uh, number four on the right-hand side. Uh, if you remember from the tour, that is the home of William Boothfield, his wife and their three children. Um, it's a lovely little muffin shop at the moment called Creme. I'm not going to tell you much more about it because if you want to know more about that, you've got to come on the walk. Ooh. But we have been on this street before. So uh, up Darblay Street on the left hand side, you'll see a yellow building. And then in between that is a little alley. Uh, that is Wardour Mews. Um, now this will take us back to an episode, I think, God, which one was this? This is like episode 34, I believe. Uh, so this was the story of Brian Alexander Robinson, if you remember this one. 19-year-old man, 
part-time DJ, uh, just come from uh, Jamaica. If you remember correctly, his mum obviously didn't care about him much. Um, he fell out of a tree when he was a child, broke his arm. She didn't take him to hospital. It was kind of a disabled arm. He couldn't really use it properly. Uh, he came to uh, Great Britain in kind of the early 1950s, obviously a time of race riots, not a great time to be here. He's hungry, he's poor. Um, he got a job at the Limbo Club, which was um, just literally down on Wardour Mews. Uh, a bit of an infamous club, it was kind of like, a, um, it seems to have gone through a bit of a history of being full of gangsters and gamblers and uh, there seems to be a lot of paedophile stuff that went on there as well. Possibly coming to Murder Mile soon, if I could do some more research on that. Um, but uh, if you remember from that story, he'd been threatened by a guy, I think his name was Big Mick or something like that. He'd threatened, this guy threatened him with a knife. So he went out and bought a knife. His mate um, got threatened, uh, got hit with some bricks. Uh, Brian Alexander Robertson ran outside. He saw his friend on the ground. He went, what happened? And he was like, those guys had just bottled me not realizing that it wasn't an attack on him, it was actually an attack on another guy. Brian Alexander Robinson grabbed his knife, ran out into the middle of the street, right in the middle of Wardour Street, right there in front of the Breakfast Club. Um, he found himself there, he was surrounded by 14 racists carrying bricks and bottles. Um, and what's he gonna do? He's kind of standing there with a knife in his hand and a disabled arm. He's pretty much stuck, he lashed out as, as uh, best he could, tried to flee. Um, a young man called Johnny Howard uh, who was one of the boys who were there, got, um, got stabbed, basically sliced. He staggered about a couple of hundred feet and then he collapsed. Um, and that was the end. Uh, that's the weird thing is that Brian Alexander Robertson, I would have said, uh, should really have been charged with, you know, uh, assault in self-defense or something like that. But he was, don't forget, this is the 1950s. He was black, he was charged with murder. Uh, what his fate is now, I really don't know. So uh, that's pretty sad, actually. Um, but if you, if you stroll down even further down that street, I'm going to mention this a couple of times on the, on the Meander Mile. Stroll down there a little bit, you'll get to Port, uh, Portland Muse. Uh, and inside there is actually uh, the fictional uh, post-production studio known as Scramble Studios, which is where Toast of London does his recordings. Uh, if you've not seen Toast of London, I would recommend it because it's, uh, it's a very, very, very good show. Um, so strolling down a little bit further now, um, if we look on our sea, I'm barely moving a couple of feet. This could be a long episode. Maybe this should have been a three-parter. Um, if you look at the buildings on the uh, right-hand side as we walk down Wardour Street, um, behind 167 Wardour Street, you'll see the Vietnamese uh, street food place. It doesn't really have much of a title on it, so it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of hard to see what it is. Um, but all of these, the facades on the front, uh, these uh, are original from the, the uh, late 1800s, but they're just facades. The backs were entirely blown out by a V1 rocket in, the, uh, in 1941. So behind there is all derelict. But this is something that I may not have mentioned before. Uh, the building that says Vietnamese street food on it, uh, which is 164 Wardour Street, that was originally one of the original flats that Evelyn Oakley stayed at. So Evelyn Oakley, don't forget, was the second, with well, allegedly the second victim of the Blackout Ripper. Which is kind of ironic, because if we stroll down a little bit further, we stroll down about five, yeah, about five doors down. So let me jump myself ahead a bit. We will see, um, we will see 153 Wardour Street. So you'll see the Hummingbird Bakery on the right hand side, and then you'll see, uh, a building called Leto. Now, this, I, I do this on the tour a lot. You look at the building that says Leto and I go, does that look like a building from the 1940s? And obviously it doesn't, it's the early 1960s that building's from. Um, but the original, so the building that we use on the tour uh, is 157, which is the building just to the right that says uh, Minalima. It's got loads of kind of weird stuff in the window. I don't really know what, what, it, uh, what it's for. Uh, but we use that as an example on the tour to say this is what the building would have looked like. Interestingly, that is actually a murder location. So, uh, let me just scroll back up. Ooh, I've lost my place now. Okay, so 157 Wardour Street. Uh, on the first floor as well, um, 23rd of January 1946, a lady called uh, Frances Vera Mizzi, also known as Mrs. Hanley, uh, 
Uh, she was murdered on the 23rd of January 1946, which is interesting. That's that's almost exactly four years after the Blackout Ripper. Uh, 26 years old, a brunette. Uh, she was the wife of a Maltese man. Uh, she was found strangled using a silk stocking and she had severe head injuries. Uh, she was also at the same time found partially clothed. Uh, it actually took the police about two days to find her because they didn't know where she was, she'd gone missing. Uh, and then they had to force entry into the premises. Uh, they were looking for her husband. Um, who apparently was a sailor. Uh, it was a little bit confusing at the time because they were looking for a boyish-faced sailor who speaks with a strong Scottish accent. Uh, there was a message going across all the networks that the, uh, the uh, uh, Navy were using at the time. That was being flashed across to all vessels. Uh, 11th of May, 1946, Emmanuel Mizzy, who was her husband, so not the Scottish guy, um, 27 years old. Apparently they did a falling out. He depart departed from Malta um, and he had previously been convicted of living off immoral earnings. Uh, um, she was a, a sex worker at the time. Um, now this murder is going to come to Murder Mile at some point, probably next year, because it's going to take me a while to research it because um, it's either some kind of domestic homicide or there's some kind of retribution or retaliation by a pimp or it's gang-related. Uh, so Soho at that time was kind of um, full of uh, um, uh, different kind of gangs who were trying to take over Soho and kind of the prostitution. So uh, it's hard to really pin down who is who, uh, who is in control. Do you know, it, there seems to be a lot of Maltese uh, gangsters who kind of took over this area. Um, so that is going to be coming to Murder Mile at some point soon. If we uh, trot down a, about another 50 feet, you will see on the left-hand side, opposite Jungle and Paul A. Young, uh, is St. Anne's Court. Uh, St. Anne's Court, uh, we've been here before. Before? That wasn't even a word. So we've been here before. So um, this is the location for Richard Rhodes Henley, one of the, my favorite episodes about the uh, Randy Canadian sailor, as mentioned before, the guy with the chronic masturbation issues who uh, couldn't look at a pornographic image more than once he had to have hundreds and he he stole about seven and a half thousand pounds worth of uh, glossy images and uh, at that time as well he'd stolen a uh, 16 millimeter films don't forget he was on crutches he was in a sailor's uniform he'd stolen them from Big Al's pawn shop around the corner which is on Dean Street which we'll get to in the, the next episode and behind us is St Anne's Court that is where he ran down so that's where he was running down he had the big boxes of porn under his arm he dropped one uh, the two guys were chasing him. Uh, if my name is, if I remember correctly, I think his name was Sydney and Al. One was like an 80-year-old accountant with asthma. The other one was a big fat bloke who was uh, struggling. So, asthmatic, fat bloke uh, chasing a man on uh, uh, crutches. Uh, he got to this point here, so literally the junction of uh, St Anne's Court and uh, Wardour Street, and this was the point where uh, Richard Rhodes Henley was like, uh, he found a taxi, he was like, uh, I, I, I need to get to Southampton because his ship was ready to leave. And he was like, take me to Southampton. And the taxi driver was like, I think his name was Mr. Gould, was like, mm, this doesn't look suspicious. So he took him around the corner to Tre uh, Trenchard Street, which is literally around the corner, uh, where there was a, a, basically a police hostel. And he walked in and went, this guy's suspicious, he was arrested immediately. Fantastic. Uh, so I'm just going to stroll down a bit more. I didn't realise how many uh, cases I'd actually packed into this episode. So you're certainly going to get your money's worth. Um, just in front, I'm just in front of coat and donut time at the moment. Yep, a lovely donut shop. Fantastic. I could literally empty that whole place with uh, one inhale of breath. To our right uh, is Broadwick Street just down there. So in between Paul A. Young and a building that I used to be actually used to be Warner Brothers distribution I know because I handed them my CV when I was uh, about 18 years old and did they give me a job no they did not uh, <laughs> that's fine that's there up to them um, if you remember correctly just down there is Broadwick Street that is also the home of, of uh, if you remember Jon Snow I would have mentioned this in one of the earlier episodes that's the epicenter of the uh, 1856 cholera outbreak which basically decimated a sixth of Soho's population within, within three days. Uh, what they realized was actually uh, the people who were using the water pump, uh, it was right next to a cesspit. The cesspit had basically slightly imploded and was leaking into the water course. So people were actually drinking poo. 
Uh, thankfully, uh, John Snow, who was a physician at the time, um, because all of the medical professionals believed in miasma, which is basically uh, the idea that uh, germs are carried on the breeze, which is you know, technically true if you look at COVID. Um, he believed that it was actually uh, uh, fecal matter in the water. They kind of, pardon the pun, they poo-pooed him, uh, but he turned out to be right. Um, also along there, we've got Margaret Cook. I think that's my episode tw 13. That's the uh, uh, sex worker from the 1940s. Uh, she was the one who was shot. And then about 70 years later, um, uh, 70 years later, t uh, a man basically in a care home, he'd been diagnosed with cancer. And he said, uh, I, I think I murdered her in 1948. And it's, it's the longest gap between a, a crime and a confession in British legal history. Um, also down there, we've got the deadliest dentist in Soho, if you remember that one. That was uh, Isidore Seifert, and also my favourite, uh, Ginger Ray. Ginger Ray is that, uh, the, the sex worker from the 1940s. That's the one that's still unsolved, and I still believe it is. Uh, the, the guy who was knighted by the king just two years after the murder. Um, if you want to go back, check out that episode as well. That's a really good one. That's episodes eight and nine. Um, also down there, I'm going to be honest about this, is Agent, Agent Provocateur, which uh, is a, is a uh, ladies' underwear shop. And uh, when, I, when I was working as a runner here, I went past that shop, they just opened it up, and Kylie Minogue was in there um, uh, as a model in the window, uh, trying out all the sexy underwear. And uh, I have to say it was one of the best days of my life. Uh, right, I'm just going to keep moving forwards now. We're just going past the ship on the left-hand side. This is not murder-related, but um, this is kind of a legendary pub because it was not too far away from... Oh, there's a new cake shop that's opened up. Amazing. Um, so I'm distracted by cake shops. Um, the ship, uh, pretty much next to the, uh, the original Marquee Club, which was an amazing club. So in that pub, kind of in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, you would get bands popping in for a drink, such as The Clash, The Police, The Cure, Joy Division, Sex Pistols. Uh, also, uh, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, U2. Ugh, U2. Um, um, apparently, Bob Dylan and Lemmy from Motorhead had a pint in there as well. So uh, if you fancy, if you like music, pop into that pub. So it's quite noisy because the helicopter's overhead. Um, oh, I should have just said, uh, corner of Broadwick Street. So that's the building we, that's the corner we literally just passed. Uh, this happened in 2009. I only just found out about this. So uh, back in 2009, there was a minicab driver called Russell Croft. Uh, he picked up a party of, uh, I can't even say it, a party of solicitors, some passengers over at the Ivy, the old location of the Ivy, uh, by Cambridge Circus. Uh, and they were heading over to China White's, which is on Winsley Street, which is just behind Sports Direct, north of Oxford Street. Uh, it was late night. Um, on that journey, we're really not too sure what happened, but on that journey, uh, Russell Croft, who was the taxi driver, um, he deliberately ran, started to run, run over some pedestrians. Uh, apparently he used his luxury S-type Jaguar as a lethal weapon, this is from the court case, to flatten engineer Michael Wiggs, who was crossing with his friends uh, on a busy road in Soho. So literally Wardour Street, literally where we are on the corner of there. He left the 32-year-old victim with catastrophic injuries. They included a fractured skull, punctured lung, numerous breaks to his ribs and legs. Um, Mr. Wiggs was hospitalized for three weeks following the incident on the 14th of June that year uh, and still suffers from nerve damage to, in his hands and anxiety. Um, I'm just going to scroll down and uh, this is what the judge said. So Judge Michael Gledhill QC said, as Mr. Wiggs moved across in front of your vehicle to the driver's side, you put your foot down hard on the accelerator. He must have caught uh, uh, he must have got caught on the front of your wheel because he fell backwards onto the ground, hit his head on the road and got a fractured skull. You continued to accelerate and literally drove over him. Uh, first the front wheel and then the back wheel. You had ample time to stop uh, between these incidents, but you made no attempt at all. Your behaviour after this incident was extraordinary. You were seen by many witnesses on your phone laughing and smiling. You appeared calm to others. What a nasty man. Um, he was charged with uh, being uh, found guilty of grievous bodily harm and dangerous driving. If it was me, I would have increased that to attempted murder. Uh, 
and following a seven-day trial at Southwark Crown Court, he was jailed for four years, which is interesting. So uh, if you think about it, Michael O'Hara, the guy we just had just up the road, who was the uh, guy running around with a hypodermic needle saying, do you want AIDS and threatening people? Apparently he didn't stab anyone with a needle, he just threatened them. He got four and a half years. This guy drove at someone with uh, his car and he got four years. Interestingly, there's a uh, uh, very posh Rolls Royce next to me that's uh, um, very posh, very elegant. Uh, the guy in it, um, he's like, oh, look at me, look how posh I am. And it's a very, very, very posh Rolls Royce. But the problem is when you see a Rolls Royce driver, I kind of feel if they're in the back seat, if they're in the front seat, you kind of feel that they are, they are uh, the driver, not the owner, Do you know, like the butler. Uh, but if they are in the car as well, you kind of feel that they're a paedophile. I think it's been kind of damaged by uh, uh, Jimmy Savile. If you're uh, from overseas and you don't know who Jimmy Savile is, uh, I would advise checking that out. Um, so, where am I at now? Outside 100 Wardour Street. Um, I'm just going to take myself down. Oh, I'm a little bit further up than I should be. Sorry about the noise at the moment. It's uh, the police helicopter is still overhead. Apparently there's protests and um, because the pubs are open, there's quite a few people who are like, oh, oh I need to get logged up, logger up, logger up. Yeah, so uh, I'm literally just outside uh, 100 Wardour Street at the moment. Um, even though it's what? It's lunchtime. There are people queuing up to go into a nightclub. I know crazy uh, you'll notice it's on, on the left hand side it's kind of uh, uh, black fronted and there's some uh, flats above very expensive flats this isn't a murder but I just found about it the other day and I thought I'd pop it in um, 3rd of March uh, 2019 so uh, literally two years ago a contestant in the reality TV show The Bachelor yeah don't worry I haven't seen it either who has it's going to be some reality TV crap, isn't it? Uh, 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 a contestant in the reality show The Bachelor who assaulted two police officers in a drunken rampage has been spared jail. jail. Uh, Tony Campbell, 29, was arrested uh, when she had a meltdown in front of the Soho restaurant at 4 a.m. on the 3rd of March, uh, 2019. Westminster Magistrates Court heard two officers arrived on the scene in Wardour Street and she started cursing at them, saying, well, the C word, and the F word, I know. And I, th I think we know what those, what those words are. Um, uh, apparently she wasn't charged with that. I know, it's, it's amazing what people do get charged with and what they don't get charged with. Fascinating. That's a really huge queue of people trying to get into there. And I don't know why. I guess, I guess it's because uh, people have been locked up for so long and they're like, oh shit, I need to escape. I need to escape. Um, we are, I'm going to need to, okay, uh, the streets have slightly changed a bit. Um, we are going to be in front of, on our left hand, left hand side is uh, 80 to 82 Wardour Street. Uh, at one point this used to be uh, Oaxaca, uh, but now it's called uh, Viapino, although it looks like it's about to be shut down again and then, then remade. Um, now this, happened, this is quite an interesting one that I stumbled across recently. Again, not really a murder, but it's kind of an interesting case that you, you kind of think to yourself, how did things end up like this? Uh, December 2000, this was when it went to court. Um, formerly, this was, location was a slug and lettuce pub. That's kind of a, a chain of pubs. They're okay. They're not, they're not as terrible as Weatherspoons, but they're not as good as kind of a decent pub. Sorry if you work for slug and lettuce. I, I just feel that way. Um, so. There was a gentleman, if you're uh, into sports, you may know about him. He's called Ke uh, Terry Dunstan, 32 years old, 15 stone. He was a British former boxer who was a British and European cruiserweight champion who once fought ex-heavyweight champion uh, Mike Tyson and was ranked 10 in the world. Ooh. But as you can appreciate, sometimes people are uh, sports people and they do really well. But when the sports dry up, what are you going to do? That's really the problem. So uh, uh, apparently Terry had carried out two attempted robberies, terrorising staff. He broke into the slug and lettuce in Shepherd's Bush in West, West London, which is still in Murder Mile's remit. Uh, armed with a knife, he punched a 28-year-old manageress in the face, breaking her jaw uh, and cheekbone. Don't forget, he's an ex-boxer and he's 15 stone. 
That's a bit pathetic. Uh, he broke a jaw. The judge said, it is horrific that a man of your enormous build and boxing background should perpetrate this on, a, on an innocent woman. John Williams prosecuting uh, uh, said that Dunstan threatened to stab and rape her. What a lovely man. Uh, he was also, there was a second attempt right here. Uh, Dunstan uh, followed the manager, Deborah Northover, from the Slug and Lettuce in Wardour Street and threatened her with a knife. Uh, he pleaded to two charges of blackmail, aggravated burglary and false imprisonment. Uh, a charge of attempted rape, which he denied, was left on file. He was jailed for eight and a half years, which means he would have been released uh, more than a decade ago. Ah, oh, happy days. I'm just going to try and cross over this road now. Um, it looks really busy, but I'm going to try my best. There we go. Oh no, it's gone quiet again. Right, uh, heading uh, south again. Uh, and we are just going to get you to... Uh, so just on the left-hand side is Maird Street. Uh, we just, uh, we've got Ben and Jerry's. That road is Maird Street. That's where we often stop on Murder Mile. And I give you a little bit of a Dennis Nielsen update. Um, Maird Street at the end, to mention Toast of London again, that's where he lives with Ed Hauser Black. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know, but you're going to want some murder-related stuff, so let me just cross over the road and we're going to nook into uh, Peter Street. Peter Street is a little side street uh, just off Wardour Street. We've been here many times before. So, um, number three, Wardour Street. Uh, if you uh, go up Wardour Street and it's just on the right-hand side, um, number three has appeared in Murder Mile quite a few times. Uh, it was the former brothel. Oh, actually, no, this wasn't. Um, Slightly further up the street was the former brothel of Elizabeth, uh, former brothel where Elizabeth Vallad worked. She was one of the uh, sex workers who was murdered by the Camden Ripper. If you go back to episode 117, the four faces of the Camden Ripper, uh, that's in part two. Um, just up there, still unsure exactly what the lo exactly which location it was. Um, it's amazing. I'm trying to stay out of people's way, and people still keep bumping into me fascinating it's amazing considering we're meant to be keeping two meters apart uh, so we still don't know exactly where that brothel location was it was never it, it moved a lot it was never quite official uh, now number three uh, which is a premises called supreme that's on the right hand side it's a kind of a red brick and a sandstone building um, 
This has appeared quite a few times. Uh, so this was the mother of baby Richard. If you remember the little baby who was uh, handed over to Mr. and Mrs. Birch, uh, who were basically the Fred and Rose West of their day. Um, it's here that she lived. Um, and that was uh, Tuesday the 4th of October, 1853. Um, she'd handed over her, uh, her baby Richard to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Birch who lived on Little Dean Street. Uh, also known as Milk Street, which is just around the corner, and they were later charged with uh, beating him to death. Um, this is also, if you go back to uh, episode 58, this is Jacqueline Beery, uh, the hooker, the poker, and the stranger. Uh, it's weird that it's the same building, but I guess you get a lot of murders in the same places. Um, Jacqueline Beery, if you remember, uh, she was a sex worker uh, working in that premises. It was the 2nd of November 1961, first floor flat uh, at number 3 Peter, Peter, Peter Street. Um, uh, her friend who normally worked there was actually uh, had taken a holiday. So her friend said, look, why don't you take over my premises for a week or two? And she was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So Jacqueline Beery walked in there. A gentleman walked in called David James Emery. He was looking for his usual sex worker. Uh, she wasn't there. Uh, instead was this other lady, who, uh, Jacqueline Beery, who, you know, if you look at the pictures, uh, she seems really lovely, really attractive. Anyway, um, it, oh, no one really knows what really happened, but he, he uh, attacked her with a poker really badly, like really horrifically hit her over the head uh, and ran up Wardour Street to escape. Um, threw the poker away, the poker was never found, uh, although police did try and search for it. Uh, PC Clifford Polk of Western Central Police Station was the first on the scene. Uh, six eyewitnesses gave him a description matching uh, David Emery uh, and he was found and arrested eight hours later. Why have I, I've put something else in. Oh yes, no, this is a new one. So this is a new one. So uh, I'm still trying to find exactly what the location is for this one, but this is Peter Street as well. So. Uh, Wednesday the 14th of May 1975 this same street I'm trying to find it obviously it's a um, it's a brothel and they're not they're not well advertised so it's hard hard to pin it down it might be at number 30 which is kind of uh, where I am at the moment it's kind of next to Byron Burger see come on Peter Street there's Byron Burger on the left and then next to that is number 30 it's meant to be that building but I can't clarify that right now uh, uh, two women there uh, were um, it was a basically a brothel and there was a, a sex club there as well and a massage parlor um there seemed to be a bit of a conflict between oh i've got a scratch my kitchen oh i've got a really itchy chin uh there seemed to be a bit of a turf war going on between the different rival pimps at the time uh what they decided to do uh was firebomb the premises which is very nice of them uh, so they firebombed the premises uh two women were uh, killed uh, a 36 year old prostitute and a 50 56 uh, year old maid they died inside the premises um, the first floor was gutted that's where they were um, also there was a man uh, who was in the premises at the time and he actually jumped out of the first floor window and broke his back so uh, I don't know much more about that at the moment but I'm gonna I'm gonna try and dive in and find as much as I can um, it's going a bit noisy now because there's a street sweeper going past yeah also, there seems to be a lot of people in football shirts, which I don't really understand. Uh, anyway, uh, we are just walking down now again, um, and we're just heading to the corner of Brewer Street, which is the next street uh, on our right-hand side. So uh, this is a street that we've uh, visited many times before, if you remember, uh, episode 39. Uh, Thomas, uh, George Thomas Pickering, uh, if you remember the episode, it was called The Silent Killer. Uh, now, if you look down the road uh, on the uh, right-hand side, you'll see a green bookshop with some neon signs. Um, it was here on Monday, the 8th of October, 1963. George Thomas Pickering, um, he was uh, uh, almost, almost totally deaf. Um, he'd been suffering with depression for years. Uh, he wanted to kill himself. He you know, things were going really horrible for him. He left his Stop house here. in South, South London, um, made his way to Soho. He bought himself a knife. He bought himself some vodka. He got really, really drunk. And his plan was to, you know, uh, try and kill himself. Uh, he couldn't do that. So he went to a sex show around the corner. None of this makes sense, but he gave three witness statements. And this is, this is what seems to be 
the police seem to be happy with the story. Um, he went, to, he went and watched a sex show he, uh, and then he decided uh, he was going to visit his favourite prostitute. And her fav his favourite prostitute was a lady called Rosa O'Neill. Uh, and she worked on the first floor of uh, that building there where the Soho Bookshop is. Um, he knocked on the door, her maid was there, she recognised him. Um, he always went to Rosa O'Neill because he was deaf and obviously his, you know, his communication wasn't particularly good. Um, uh, most of the prostitutes wouldn't, wouldn't accept him they, they, or they would mock him whereas Rosa wouldn't she was really nice to him she treated him really nicely um, the maid saw him and she was like oh come on in yeah she's upstairs uh, I was going to say help yourself that's probably not what they say um, she did that he walked in there and he, he said for no reason he, he brutally stabbed her to death and he's, he even said I've no idea why I did it um, she was one of the nicest people I've ever met that was his exact words so um Odd story there. I got another one here. This is again on the corner of Brewer Street and Wardour Street. So I'm standing right in the location. Uh, what date is this? Michael, you're, oh yeah, there we go. Um, 2nd of August, 2001. So 20 years ago, uh, Philip Saville, 40 years old, a businessman from Suffolk, was literally beaten up where I am now by six men on Wardour Street. Um, uh, Gregorius Zamik, I can't even pronounce that, 27-year-old Latvian from Beckton East London uh, was charged with his murder, but the charges were dropped owing to insufficient ev evidence in 2003. It's still unsolved today, so it's still lingering on. The 40-year-old died 16 days after he was struck. He fell onto the pavement on Wardour Street uh, on the 2nd of August. Apparently he'd been out uh, uh, with a, a couple of drinks with some friends, you know, leaving a colleague's uh, leaving party. Um, bit of a late night, had a couple of drinks, ended up in a fight, ended up dead. Bit of, bit of a sad story, really. But unfortunately, that does happen a lot. So I'm moving on a little bit further now, uh, not much further, onto the corner of Old Compton Street. So, where we are right now, uh, Old Compton Street, if you go back to episode four, which is the mysterious death of Dutch Leia, um, the, where, where I'm literally standing now uh, is the last sighting of Dutch Leia at 11.30 p.m. on Friday the 8th of May, 1936. Um, now, her building where she was actually based is uh, 66 Old Compton Street. Uh, I'm not gonna go into the story because you get the full story. Uh, you actually get a very nice different version of the story on if you come on Murder Mile, so please do treat yourself. Uh, her building is down there, 66 Old Compton Street on the left-hand side. But where we're standing now on the corner of Old Compton Street and Wardour Street was where she was last seen by her friends. Um, Lily Joyce and Nellie Few, um, her personal friends of hers, saw her turn off Wardour Street, walk east along Old Compton Street and enter her flat at 66 Old Compton Street. She was accompanied by a man described as in his 30s, 5 for 8, foreign looking you can tell that this is kind of a 1930s murder because that's what they went with uh, with long dark hair and a slouching gait he had an over overcoat on and a dirty cap um, that is the last known sighting of Dutch Lair alive um, it still remains unsolved to this day and it's over 80 years on now uh, even though we've got Old Compton Street uh, to our left if you look to the right uh, you'll see a tiny little court uh, called Tilbury Court. Um, uh, actually, I, uh, I get a lot of police uh, on the tour. Uh, the great thing is they give me loads of really interesting pieces of information. And one of the officers said, Tilbury Court, even though it's tiny, if you look at it now, it's literally, I would say, probably 100 feet long. And there's probably about 10, 15 buildings in there. It has the highest concentration of crime in any place across the West End. And that's just because there's so few buildings, but also all the buildings are, well, they, they've been kind of cleaned up a bit now, but uh, they were uh, a lot of crack dens, a lot of brothels. The, the police have been trying to crack down a lot over the last couple of years, but it's, uh, yeah, there's a real, uh, uh, real, real problem there. Um, just moving down a little bit further now, I'm gonna walk past the, uh, the oh, the outside toilets. Oh, lovely. They've got the, the plastic little booths where you can have a little wee-wee in. Why have they done that? Because all the pubs are open again and everybody wants to start, uh, everybody wants to start urinating in the street. Oh, joy. Um, 
Uh, just to our left, you will see some kind of curved uh, railings and a big church behind. That is the back of St. Anne's Church. Um, you remember uh, St. Anne's Church from uh, episode 73, which is the raising of David and Chelsea. Um, in there was actually a memorial to the victims of the Admiral Duncan pub bombing, uh, which was our episode five, uh, which was just on Old Compton Street. But, um, and if you remember, uh, Saturday the 8th of May, 1999, um, there was a memorial there for everyone who died in the Admiral Duncan bombing, but also one of the attendees there was David Morley. Uh, he was the uh, assistant manager at the Admiral Duncan pub. Um, obviously at the, that point, uh, they wouldn't really know, but uh, he would later be attacked uh, by a, a group of kids, uh, one, of the, one of whom was 14-year-old Chelsea Mahoney. This was down on the South Bank, kicked to death um, simply because he was gay. Uh, his memorial was here, um, uh, not too long later, he died on uh, 30th of October 2004, he's only 34 years old. Just moving on a bit, making sure that we're not getting uh, uh, run over again. Um, it's busy out today, I didn't expect it to be this busy because normally, bank holiday, people tend to go, oh I can't be bothered. Uh, normally they stay at home or, or they go somewhere else, but I guess because, because we can't really go anywhere, people are um, out and about. A lot of people queuing up to buy theatre tickets, so, uh, which is good. I've got, I've got £200 worth of theatre tickets and I've had them for the last two years. And I can't wait to, uh, I can't wait to use them. So uh, I'm on the uh, corner of uh, Wardour Street and Shaftesbury Avenue at the moment. Um, just before we go into Chinatown, which is ahead, you'll see all the kind of the red lanterns above. Um, so a really busy street just past Les Miserables as well, which I've never gone to see. I have no intention of ever seeing that. Thank you very much. Um, so this is from episode 101. God, that, was a, that feels like a long time ago, and it wasn't. Uh, the fatal seizure of John Esmond Murphy. I'm just gonna try and cross the road without getting run over. Um, where I'm standing right now, uh, if you remember John Esmond Murphy, it was Saturday the 7th of November 1908. He was literally just up the road on, um, I think it was 80 Shaftesbury Avenue. There was a, a, a bank there called uh, Cartmel and Schlitt. God, I'm gonna have to remember, my memory's having to take a bit of a pounding on this one. Uh, basically, he went in there on Saturday the 7th of November 1908, he had a gun, but he doesn't remember doing this at all. Um, it's going to get a bit noisy now because there's loads of police cars. Let's see if I can get through this. Um, if you remember, uh, he went in there. He, he, his sister was uh, need to have a, uh, an operation because she's got a brain tumor going on. Um, uh, don't forget, this is the kind of the, not even the 1910s. So medicine's pretty shitty then. But uh, she needed money for that. He was really stressed out. He'd been suffering with malaria since they'd come back from India years ago, but also he suffered from uh, petty mal seizures, which is not the same as grand mal seizures when you have a full-on seizure. It's about to get noisy. Five bikes, no, six police bikes, and that was it. And normally when you see police bikes, uh, normally that means that royalty is behind and they're being uh, kind of led, you know, they're probably uh, taking lovely Princess Kate to a nice clothing shop or something. Uh, or maybe trying to usher uh, uh, Prince Andrew away from the paparazzi. That's probably more likely. Anyway, let's get back to this uh, episode 101. Uh, if you remember, the, the bank was just up there. That was Cartmel and Schlitt. Um, John Esmond Murphy walked into the bank. He, he was having one of his seizures, allegedly. He walked in. He wanted to rob the bank. He didn't. He shot the guy dead, uh, Frederick Schlitt. And then literally, he ran down the street. He punched a guy. Um, and he was arrested literally where we are now, on the corner of Wardour Street and uh, Shaftesbury Avenue. Um, he was arrested and uh, he, 
I, do you know what? I can't actually remember whether he was executed or not. I, I think they took compassion on him and he actually, I think he got a life sentence, but I'm not too sure about that. Not on my notes. I've only got so many notes in front of me. Whew, right. We're just going to dive into Chinatown at the moment. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've been here many times before. Um, if you look on your, I'm going to whiz through these ones because you kind of don't need these ones. If you look on your left, you will see Dancy Place. Uh, if you go back to the Chinatown episode of Meander Mile, uh, there's a, an interesting little story in there about, uh, about drug dens and gambling and uh, a man who didn't pay his debts and uh, got chopped up. Lovely. What we can do, this is also on the Chinatown episode, but you can go back to uh, an earlier episode about this. This is uh, episode 98, uh, The Petty Grudge of Victor Castigador. Um, just on my left-hand side is uh, Play to Win. It's an amusement arcade, it's, uh, and it still was back in that day. So I'll just give you a brief overview. Uh, Saturday, 2nd of April, 1989, uh, Victor Castigador, who was a, 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 a security guard working in there, um, he seems to be full of bullshit. He seems to be uh, the kind of person who was claiming that he worked for, uh, he was a, a, like a, an assassin for the uh, Philippines. Uh, he wasn't because he was only about five foot one tall, which was utter bullshit. Anyway, this is 23 uh, Gerard Street. Um, this used to be known as Leisure Investments Amusements Arcade. I'm glad they changed it to Play to Win because it's a much, much better name than Leisure Investments Amusement Arcade. A terrible title. Anyway, he went in there with a couple of friends, Victor Castigador. He decided to rob the place. His, initially, it's not a bad idea. He kind of took all the staff who were there, took them down into the basement where there's a cage, uh, got all the, uh, the money out of the cages, locked the staff inside the cages, so therefore they couldn't call the police. And he was like, right, I'm gonna leave. Um, but because he was slightly mental, uh, he decided to get a, a, big, uh, a big can of petrol, tipped it over all the staff, set fire to them. In total, they stole £8,685 in used, untraceable banknotes uh, and shoved it into an anonymous black rucksack. Um, two of the staff burnt to death, two of the security guards, two survived with horrendous injuries. Absolutely horrendous. Um, they actually made their way to, made it to court. They were able to survive. Um, as far as we know, Victor Castigador died of a heart attack just a couple of years ago in prison and, and he was on a whole life sentence which would mean he'd never be released. Um, just, uh, uh, I've mentioned this in the Chinatown episode as well but just to my right, 37 Wardour Street is uh, O'Neill's, the pub. Very busy at the moment because everyone is, uh, everyone's currently at the pub uh, having a couple of beers, having a lovely time. Uh, but this will be coming to Murder Mile at some point soon. 1st of May 1941. Um, this was known as um, the Palm Beach Bottle Club. Uh, in the basement there was a, a club. This is where uh, Harry Distelman was uh, murdered um, by Antonio Babe Mancini. We're gonna be diving into this case a lot deeper in Murder Mile coming up soon. Uh, as you know, as you can appreciate, I kind of uh, really enjoy uh, stories about gangsters. Yeah, because they're always good and they're always uh, full of truth. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on. Uh, I'm not going to tell you more about that because we're going to dive into that very shortly uh, when we do a full episode of that. We are also passing now. We're just going to go underneath the, um, the Chinese gates, which lead us into um, Leicester Square. So I was slightly distracted because the police were there and they're it looks like they're looking for someone. Um, we are just going in front of 13 to 17. So the white building, just past the Chinese gates, you'll see um, uh, 13 to 17 Wardour Street. Um, uh, and you'll see, oh, it's a building that says uh, Orient London. Uh, this was originally the Latin Quarter nightclub. If you go back to a very early episode, episode 10, which is Alfredo Zomparelli and the Golden Goose, um, this was the Latin Quarter nightclub down in the basement. Um, uh, David and Ronnie Knight, um, they were known gangsters. They had a rival gangster, uh, Alfredo Zomparelli, uh, who was a, a hitman for um, one of the crew, actually killed, actually killed David Knight. A uh, couple of men who can't handle their bit. Um, uh, David Knight, who uh, was how is it? How is it that people, when they're allowed out, they have one beer 
and then all of a sudden they have to be loud. Yeah, well, I'm sure they'll be in bed by about two o'clock. Um, yeah, so David Knight was in there downstairs in the ba basement. Alfredo Zomparelli, there was a fight in the club. Alfredo Zomparelli killed David Knight, who was the brother of uh, Ronnie Knight. Um, and this led to the assassination of Alfredo Zamparelli at the Golden Goose on Old Compton Street, literally just around the corner that we just passed. If you remember correctly, that was the uh, the night uh, that was the uh, amusement arcade. He he was charged with his murder. He was given about three years. He uh, he should have been given longer. He wasn't. He was released. Everyone said to him, "You need to leave town now." And he's like, oh, "I'm a big tough guy. I'm a gangster. I don't need to leave town." So what he did was he set up a travel agency literally around the corner from uh, the Golden Goose, the area that he hung out at, and uh, he was easy to find, and he was murdered. Oh dear, gangsters, eh? Gangsters. Um, if we look on our left-hand side, you will also see, very noisy here, if you look on, on our left-hand side, you will also see Lyle Street. Um, this will take us back to episode 60, uh, which is uh, Reginald Gordon West, um, uh, Monday the 5th of April 1961. This is just kind of further down there um, at 33 Lyle Street. This was a kind of a, a sex club. Uh, if you remember Three Gentlemen, it was someone's birthday. They decided that they were going to go into town, have some beers, then go to a sex club. It was six in the, after, uh, in the evening. It was hardly the time to go for a sex club. Uh, not, not that I would know what time you go to a sex club. Um, they went into there. Um, they were. Uh, they, they said that they were ba basically cheated out some money. So to, to to teach the ladies who were there a lesson, what they decided to do was get some petrol, put some um, put some paper and some boxes on the stairs, set fire to it, cause a bit of a fire, but really not cause too much of a nuisance. Unfortunately, uh, it had been a hot summer. The fire raged up the stairs. Uh, the ladies inside were like, "Oh shit, fire!" So they escaped onto the roof. Fire brigade turned up. Everything got sorted. The problem was. Original Gordon West, who'd been out and had a couple of beers that day, uh, he'd had a, uh, he'd had one too many beers. He he said to the lady, "Oh, can I just use the toilet?" Popped in, used the toilet. Looked like he may have fallen asleep on the toilet. The fire started. Uh, he burnt to death in the toilet. The crime scene photos are pretty horrific because when you look at them, it's hard to see that there's even a man there. It's really really horrible. Um, uh, so let's stroll on a bit. Uh, and that takes us to number nine. So if we look on the right-hand side, you'll see a building. Thank God it says number nine on it. Oh, it's sunny, I'm probably gonna sneeze. Uh, it says, oh, I'm gonna sneeze again. Here it comes. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I hope you said bless you. Uh, number nine, uh, in front of it, I'm not gonna look up at the building because I'll sneeze again. On the front of it, it says exchange and bullion office. Um, now, if you go back to episodes, oh God, I think it could be 18 and 19, which is the Nora Upchurch one. That was a sex worker who was found in a, uh, an empty shop over on Shaftesbury Avenue, not too far from here. A man walked in and went, oh my God, there's a, a dead lady on the floor. And it actually turned out it was him that had done it. Um, sometimes when I was researching that case, sometimes it was easy to get a bit distracted on that one because there was a similar case at the same time. So in this building right here, so um, a lady called Florence Florrie Payne, she was murdered by Sidney Robert Smith on the 16th of October, 1931 uh, in an empty shop, literally here. This was an empty shop at the same time. Um, uh, the problem was, uh, the, the murders are very similar. She was strangled. It looked like she'd been raped as well. Um, which is why they, they kind of thought that it was the same guy who'd done the same murder, but it wasn't. It was just literally same time, same kind of building, same suspect, um, uh, almost an identical murder. So it does happen, even though people will say, you know, there's no such thing as coincidence. There is. This literally happened. Oh, um, just strolling down a bit. But, oh, it looks like there might be a protest about to happen at some point. There's lots of shouting. Um, this, this, we don't have a location for this, but I thought I'd uh, fill you in on this. Um, so there's a lady called Vanessa Bex. This is back in 2002. Uh, sex worker, uh, working in all the various led, red light districts. Uh, basically, she'd been, uh, she was facing five years in imprisonment. Uh, 
uh, owing to the, the fact that she, uh, lots of antisocial behaviour in all of the different brothels in the area. Basically, basically she'd been kicked out of all of them. Um, she wasn't allowed to come in back into the boroughs of Camden and Islington. That's how bad it had got. Um, and basically, there, there was a, uh, an intervention order against her saying, you can't come into this area. Um, but uh, she had more than 100 convictions, mainly for prostitution, which prevented her entering King's Cross, King's Cross Red Light District. Uh, also, uh, some of this area around here where we are. But this is the bit I wanted to get to. December 2009, this is when the court trial was. Um, she was accused of clipping uh, an IT consultant out of £400 after he tried to pay for her, uh, for her to have sex, after he tried to pay her so he could have sex with a prostitute. Um, basically, he'd put down a deposit. That was what basically happened. She was like, yeah, yeah, come on in. Um, have sex with a prostitute. She gave him four, uh, he gave her 400 quid and he was like, yep, not gonna happen. Bye bye. Um, whether that, whether that's gonna come to murder mile, I doubt it. It's one of those cases where I'm just like, nah, no, but not that bothered. Um, and this brings us close to the end because actually in front of us, um, uh, if we keep going down the road, we go past Leicester Square and that takes us to, ah, uh, what's the name of that road? Wind, Wh uh, Wickham Street, of course. And that will be episode 104, which is the incompetence of John Carragher. If you remember that episode, uh, Friday the 29th of March, 1968, roughly 1.40 p.m., mild-mannered clerk who was working there uh, called Frederick Monk. Uh, he was a wages clerk. Everyone really liked him. He was very efficient. He kind of kept his door shut. Builders would come in, they'd knock on the door, they'd get their wage slips, and he'd hand, hand it over and then they'd disappear. Then they'd go to the pub, as always happens. But um, John Carragher, who was working there, went in, decided to rob the place. Um, um, no one really knew at the start how it really happened because uh, uh, Freddie Monk seemed to be uh, inside a locked room, but uh, after a while they seemed to work it out. It seemed to be one of those really bad, badly bungled robberies. Um, such a shame, because if you look at that episode, he seems like a really nice man. Um, anyway, I, I think that brings us to the end of uh, Meander Mile, episode five. And thank God, because I'm exhausted. Uh, that's, that's a lot of work to cram in into, I think that was an hour. I just hope that my, uh, my phone was recording, otherwise I am screwed. I'm gonna have to redo the whole lot. Um, so up next is uh, episode six, that will be Dean Street. So uh, we're covering Wardour Street, which we've done today, Dean Street and Frith Street. They are three parallel streets that basically run through uh, Old Compton Street and down to Shaftesbury Avenue, right through Soho, and they're parallel. They're literally side by side. So a lot of these stories are gonna cross over. Um, and that's, uh, that's it. Um, Thank you to everyone who's uh, kind of patron supporters and donators. Um, what I'm gonna do is because, because I'm doing all of these episodes at the same time to give me time to go off and do the research and also give me a chance to go and visit my dad and my stepmom, um, I'm doing them early. So uh, everyone, if I, to thank everyone who are patron supporters and donators, I'm gonna put you into episode 135 uh, or 136. I'll have emailed you by that point to let you know. Um, don't forget, if you need to, you can follow uh, the map of where we walk today by going onto my blog. Go to uh, the Murder Mile Walks uh, uh, website. Uh, the, the details are obviously on the, the notes below. Uh, there's a blog for this page. There's all the pictures on there. You can follow all of the... Um, you can follow me on uh, uh, Google Maps as well. So my brain has gone absolutely dead. Only because I've got I've got to cycle all the way up to Greenford now to shoot all of the uh, the videos and the pictures for the the Penny Bell murder. Oh God, I'm exhausted. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that. Um, God, that was an hour long. Right, that's more than enough. Time to shut up, Michael. Uh, hope you all enjoyed that. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.